We are so blessed today to have this congregation to joining together in fellowship. And we want to welcome everyone here. So if you would just turn to the person next to you and welcome them, I would like to welcome all Israelites up and down the hinterlands of America. We are blessed as you tune in to Rumble today. We're so blessed and we want to thank all of you. Every one of you, let's join together and have a Bible study this morning. And let's open up with prayer. Shall we pray? Lord God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, King of kings and Lord of lords, how grateful we are that you have called us out of the darkness of the kingdom of Satan, translating us into the kingdom of your dear Son. My Lord and my God, what a glorious thing it is to be delivered from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God by the precious blood of Christ through the baptism for the remission of sin. My Lord and my God, how grateful we are and thankful that we, your covenant children, may seek your favor today as we open our Bibles and we humbly acknowledge, Father in heaven, what the Gospel of John tells us, that except it be given him from heaven, a man can know nothing. And we humbly acknowledge that today, dear Lord God. And I pray now, great shepherd of the sheep, that as your sheep people gather here today, and in other places across America, and beyond the oceans, O oh my God and my Father, in Christ's name, bless the remnant of your people. Number them as a shepherd numbers his flock. Save us from predatory wolves that seek to devour us. My Lord and my God, exercise your sovereignty in putting to flight our enemies. Oh my God in heaven, would you allow the wicked to fall into the pit that they dig, that we, your children, may be delivered from the designs of evil tyrants that seek the genocidal removal of your people from this earth. Lord God, save us. Spare your people your sheep people, from the swine, the dogs, the serpents, and all the vile people that are seeking the liquidation and destruction, not only of those who are your children, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they are trying to dismantle and destroy to cancel, to censor, and to remove every vestige of Christianity from our land and from our lives. Lord God, save us. 
Spare us, O great God, and we do repent for breaking your covenants, repudiating your laws as a nation. My Father and my God, we have scorned the name of Christ across America. We have blasphemed your law. We have repudiated, Lord God, the beautiful words of Scripture. And we have trampled under our national feet the love of God and the history and the greatness of our people. So, Father in heaven, we repent before you today and we humbly ask, as a child would plead with his father, O oh, Father in heaven, please be merciful unto us. Be merciful unto us and show us clemency, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We will turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll join our voices together beginning at verse number 14. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and we'll stop at the end of verse 18. When St. Paul wrote his epistle to the Corinthian church in the first century of our Christian heritage and world, the Roman world ruled the world, the, the, the then known world. Rome was the imperial power of the world. The Roman emperors at that time were tyrants. And Christians were being persecuted, hunted down, and many of them were being destroyed and killed, fed to the lions and whatever else they could find to torture them with. In the middle of that chaos and disorder, you had Greek-speaking Israelites of the dispersion scattered all over in Asia Minor, all over the Greek world, and it was the predominant part of the Roman Empire. You had the Latin part of the Roman Empire. That was over in the, along the Mediterranean shores where the city of Rome and that part of the world was. And then you had the old part of the Roman Empire down in Egypt where the city of Alexandria was the principal city. And there were a lot of Judeans down there, as well as a lot of other Hebrew-speaking people. Now, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was trying to guide them into a modeled, a model lifestyle that we find ourselves very much in need of today. We're talking about Building a Christian parallel culture in the middle of a country whose culture has literally collapsed. 
1950, if you were an American, you knew that 90% of all the people in America were white. If you lived in 1950, you knew that abortion was illegal, unlawful. In 1950, interracial marriage was not allowed. It was a crime, a criminal offense. In 1950, America was a segregated nation. Churches were all segregated. All across America, segregated. It was a totally different world. That is to say that our country was all part of the same culture. Homogenous, white people. The public schools were all white, where white children attended, and they were black for the black children. Now, surprisingly, the white people... 90% of the people in 1950 being white got along well with the rest of the people. They did well. Black families, mostly, almost all black families had fathers and mothers in the home. Fatherless children were, was rare. Children born out of wedlock among white people was almost unthinkable and shameful. And it was a social stigma for a girl to become pregnant out of wedlock. The moral structure and fiber of America was absolutely, radically different than it is today. So fast forward to 2023, and where are we? We live in a multicultural nation. The whites are disappearing. Sadly, more non-white children were born in 1922 than white children. More white Americans are dying than white children being born. Now these are realities, church. And you and I, who are so blessed to be here with our young people, our children, grandchildren, or just children that you love, like the little boy that we sang happy birthday to this morning. They are going to have to live in this world that's coming, unraveled in our time of history. Amid the disorder, the chaos, and the dismay, your children are going to be raised and grow up. Your children are going to be dealing with this world. Now, if Jesus Christ delays His coming... I beg of you, ask yourselves, in this year, 2023, what will America be like in 2030? What will be the status quo in 2040? What will we be like in 2050? 
at the accelerated rate that our country is being changed, transformed. Before our very eyes, we can see it. We can feel it. We can know it. We can't hide from it. We can't run from it. There's no escaping. Now, how many of you would agree that our children are pretty much dependent today for what tomorrow will be looking like in the world that they live in and the culture they live in? We have an enormous responsibility, parents, to prepare our children for the future that unfolds in this country. And if we fail to do it, we'll be failing our own children. And we ought not to do that. So I'm, I'm begging you, please, join with me now as we seek the face of our God in Scripture to build a counterculture, a biblical counterculture in the middle of this chaotic culture that no one can identify with excepting for those who are living in chaotic, chaotic minds. Shall we read together from 2 Corinthians, beginning at verse 14? And I want to thank all the boys and girls. If you have your Bibles open, and I pray you do. Thank you, boys and girls. Here we go. Beginning in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, the Bible says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, that's a statement. That's a command, don't yoke yourselves up with unbelievers. Next point, for what fellowship hath righteousness with right unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? How can we, men and women, boys and girls, how can we be Christian and walk in the darkness of the chaos around the world that we we're now living in? The Bible says we must become lights in the world, shining brightly against the darkness. But let's read on. Verse number 15. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? The word Belial is not, a, is not a good word, boys and girls. The children of Belial is another way of saying the children of Satan. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? So to our boys and girls... And to the critics of the King James Bible who complain that its language is too archaic and lost in our generation, 
How many of you know what the word infidel means? Very simple. It means unbeliever. What, what part hath he that believeth with an unbeliever? And the King James Version calls them, that is an unbeliever, an infidel. How many thinks that's okay? I think you ought to add it to your vocabulary, boys and girls. An infidel is an unbeliever. You heard it in God's house. Let's read on. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Now think about that. What agreement should your body have, your temple, with idols? So think about all the idols that are worshipped in America today. And then think harder about how people decorate their bodies like the heathen. Like the idolatrous heathen. So are we adopting the symbols of the, of the idolatrous? That's the question. But let's read on. The Bible says, For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. We know that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's where the Holy Spirit dwells. In a temple that has not been given over to idolatry and sin. And God says, I will dwell in them, I will walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now that's a promise. That's a promise God is making to us. And wouldn't it be wonderful for us to qualify to be a people that have not entered into communion with the darkness the darkness of idolatry and whatever else goes with it. Now, verse 17 and 18, I believe, personally, are two of the most powerful verses to be found in the New Testament. Let's read them together. Verse 17, boys and girls, here we go. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, not, not long ago, we did a word study on the word touch. Touch not the unclean thing. And while we'll not retread that water again and go back there and review that, the word touch has implications of physical intimacy outside your race. Touch not the unclean thing. Part of building a culture 
is to somehow prepare the minds of our children and their hearts to keep their genetics from being destroyed for future generations. Probably the, one of the number one goals of building a, a parallel culture is to preserve the genetics of our children. Now we have read from the New Testament and there are a bundle of other places we could turn to. St. Paul was trying to prepare the Corinthians to build a parallel culture. That was the goal of a New Testament congregation to build, solidify a body of people and bring them together so that they could be unlike the pagan, Roman, Greek world of their generation. Every New Testament church is the confirmation of the apostles, Paul, John, Peter, James, Jude, Matthew, and all the others to build a parallel culture. Now, when you, think of build, when you think of a culture, what do you think of? Now, I invite everyone to come and join with us today. I invite everyone to be seated and to maybe learn something. When you think of the word culture, what comes to your mind? How would you define it? How would you define the word culture? Well, I just thought, okay, I don't want to be uh, just telling the congregation, you know, what my private opinion of a culture is, and I can do that. But I looked it up, and the most sophisticated definition I could find in the Western world is this, and I quote, a culture is a way of life of a particular group of people, their behaviors, their beliefs, their values, their virtues, their symbols, and their moral and religious standards. Now, if I ask you to think about a culture... I could ask you, what is the culture of the Amish? We have a whole colony over here, just within walking distance almost. A colony of the Amish. They're growing so fast, they just divided into two colonies. Half of the colony moved over to Cedar, and, and uh, I believe even south of Cedar County. They're growing. The Amish are the fastest growing subculture in America today. Now, someone, this was a, I think a person who wanted to create a big laugh, said if the Amish keeping having children at the rate they're having them, 
they will constitute 95% of all white people in America in another 75 years. I thought that was a sobering thought. When you think of the Amish, you think of all the, all the summation of their culture. What makes an Amishman? You know that their outward appearance is how you identify them. We are not identified by outward appearance in our clothing. Our clothes do not identify us, excepting for the fact they do cover us. But we dress pretty much like everyone, and that's, that's no problem. I, I think that's acceptable. The Amish drew a line with technology. Now, they acknowledge when pushed that they are into technology. If you have an axe, a pick, and a shovel, you're already embracing technology. So they acknowledge they have technology. But they said they drew a line. And they drew a line to save themselves from what they considered that technology would do to them if they went beyond what they considered to be reasonable. So they drew that line. Now, I did not know this, but there is a subculture that's rising up in America today that's called, well, they call themselves different names. They are taking on the ways of the Amish, but they're not allowing their children to have a smartphone. So they're limiting the technology, but a higher level than the Amish. They're not driving horses and buggies. They're driving cars, trucks, tractors, and everything. They're a higher subculture than the Mennonites. The Mennonites are becoming fairly modern and embracing technology. And for that matter, a lot of the Amish groups are too. Some Amishmen now have cell phones, as you know. Not, not all by any means. The old order Amish are still holding on. So the Amish are fighting against the tide of the culture. Now most all of you know that the Amish allow their sons and daughters to leave the colony at a certain age. To explore the world. They can go, they can just go out into the world and look at it, explore it. And if that's what they want, they kiss them goodbye and ask them not to, not to return. If they choose the world, they choose to leave their Amish family behind. Now, surprisingly, the Amish have a reasonably high retention rate. The majority of their young people come back because they do not know how to function in this world called America today, but a lot of them do. How many have talked to somebody that was a former Amish? 
I have talked to them. I enjoy talking to them. Well, we identify the Amish because we identify them with their clothing, with their outward symbols. And if you know very much about the Amish, you could identify them by their rules and their behavior and their social structure. They have unusual courting rules. In fact, it's really strange to me what they do with young people before they allow them to actually get married. So all of those characteristics make up the total summation of the culture of the Amish. Now, if someone asks you, what is the culture of the Church of Israel? What would you say? You couldn't say, well, it's the way we dress. Because we don't, we don't dress different than the rest of the world. So how are we different? What differenti differentiates us from anybody else? See, we have to dig a little deeper into the cultural differences before we know the difference between a person that embraces Church of Israel versus the world. We could ask the question, what's the difference between someone who attends the Church of Israel as opposed to the First Baptist Church in Nevada, Missouri? Or to the Baptist Church in Shell City? What makes us different? Or I could say, what makes them different than us. Now, surprisingly, in 1950, we were much, much closer to the people of the First Baptist Church in Nevada or Shell City than we are today. Why? Why are we so radically different in our belief system? Let me tell you why, church. How many of you people were born after 1948? Born after 1948. See, the majority of everyone here. Before 1948, the United States military was segregated. American society was segregated. But we had a president in 1948 who by executive order integrated the United States military force. He integrated the U.S. military, every branch of it, by executive order. Who was that? Who was president in 1948? Come on, boys and girls. Hen Harry Truman. Harry Truman was president. He had succeeded Franklin Roosevelt at his death. So, the military was integrated. What was the next step in losing our racial integrity? Who led the way? In the next step, it was no less than Billy Graham. When he held a big crusade in Atlanta, Georgia, he demanded the city allow him to invite 
the, back, the black population, which he did. So Billy Graham opened the door for integration into the churches. Now, before that, however, way back in the earliest years of the 1900s, up in Topeka, Kansas, some of you have been there, there was a meeting held by Charles Parham, and later he was joined by a black minister, William Seymour, and they organized the first outbreak, Pentecostal speaking in tongues, early 1900s. It was integrated almost day one. We have a little book in the bookstore on that whole history. So the door had been opened, but who swung the door wide open? This church was here, up on the high ground, up on Battlefield Hill, when this is all happening. But who was president when they literally tore the hinges off the door of a segregated nation? That takes us to the year 1954. Brown versus Board of Topeka, Kansas. Brown versus Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas. 1954, when the infamous United States Supreme Court desegregated every public school, college, and university in this land. So how many were born before 1954? Boy, this is a young congregation, youthful, a youthful congregation. Now, here's what everybody needs to know. Boys and girls, if you're listening, I want you to know. This church could have very easily embraced the new culture. Now, people didn't embrace that integrated social order and structure readily and easily. Do you know what it required to get the first black student into a school in Little Rock, Arkansas? What did it require? An army of 10,000 United States soldiers with loaded rifles and bayonets. America was ready to fight and shed blood before they would become racially integrated. But the power that was exercised was so overwhelming that the parents who gathered to oppose it appeared helpless and powerless in the face of an army of 10,000 trained, disciplined American soldiers. At that time, there was no wokeness in the U.S. military. That was 1954. 
the church, right this church, watch this unfolding. And there was a conscious decision made. We will not integrate. If the rest of the country chooses to do that, we are sad, we are in sorrow, but we refuse to go down that path. So you know that everyone in this congregation that could vote in 19, in the, uh, in the election when George Wallace was running, and George Wallace was the very famous American who was running for the office of the president who said something like, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He had a groundswell of support across the country because he was going to go back and reverse all the desegregational laws and return America to a segregated state. So what happened to poor George Wallace? They shot him. Didn't kill him, but they paralyzed him. Set him into a wheelchair for the rest of his life. They so impaired him that he was out of the battle. And there was no one courageous enough to fill his shoes. George Wallace is the hero who wrapped his arms around the pillars of a college in Alabama. And it took federal, because they were going to integrate this university with the first black student. And George Wallace stood in the doorways to deny entry. And they had to physically remove him, and when they did, he grabbed the hold of a pillar, and they had to take his hands and forcibly remove them and bodily carry him off. We ought to remember that name. So that was the struggle that this church went through in the years of desegregation. So all through that time in history, this church remained segregated. Now, we'll, we're still segregated today, and that has been one of the primary ways that our culture here has been identified. We're not identified by our clothing. We're identified by the fact that we have always been known as a white-only church. It's not something that we broadcast. Not something that we, you know, toot on a horn as though it makes us any better than anyone else. No, it doesn't make us holier than thou. We are all sinners saved by grace. But we're saved not to integrate, not to amalgamate, but to remain as God created us. And the children we bring into the world should replicate who we are. 
We are born with white skin. Our children ought to bear white skin. And their children. That's why we are born white. There's, think of all the generations who have practiced racial integrity to give you white skin. There's a heritage behind whiteness. Yes, there's a heritage behind blackness. Now, surprisingly, church, for all the rhetoric and for all the opposition and for all those who have raised up a bad report or an evil report in Vernon County or anywhere against this church about our racial stand, do you know, since the church was formed in April of 1941, there has never been a racial incident in this church where this church engaged by organization of this church in a single anti-racial event. We have simply resolved to walk with our own culture, not trying to intimidate, coerce, or try and convince other people that we have the only way. We know that we live in America. It's a land where every religion now finds a place at the table. Now, we're a, we're a body who has been denied a place at the table. The culture table of America has no, plate, no place for the culture of the Church of Israel. Why? They would if you were black because black churches are okay. Black colleges are okay. Chinese communities are okay. Japanese communities are okay. How many of you know that you can go to a Chinese community in San Francisco and you wouldn't know it from Beijing, China? They speak Chinese. It's a China. It's a, it's a little tiny replica of their country, their culture. Nobody argues with them. But because white people want to retain their whiteness, that makes them bad. The Japanese have retained their Japanese culture for thousands of years and no one complains. But white people are not allowed to do that. Would you say that it's not conspiracy thinking to believe that there must be an agenda against white people. An agenda that is determined to eradicate the Caucasian race from this earth. I believe that to be true. Now, when I first heard what I'm now going to report, I did not really endorse it and believe it. I have since learned that it has a very high percentage of being absolutely true. 
that when the COVID-19 protein experimental gene therapy DNA altering injection was given to the world, they had a special formula for the white nations that was more lethal more dangerous. Do you know what the rate of the black death was in Africa? Well, number one, the black people were too smart to accept the injection. Many of them fought against it. But it was not so lethal. Where was the highest rate of death among young white males that took the injection, it was among white males in America and all across Europe and the Western world. So when I say, church, that we who are here and alive on the scene of history today that have been so blessed and fortunate to be gifted with children. I would like to believe that we embrace the idea that maybe this congregation ought to sign on to the idea of improving and reinforcing our cultural mandate so that our children our children, your children, their future, your future will be preserved to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you identify the Church of Israel, if you ask a local person in Vernon County, what identifies someone from the Church of Israel? They might say, well, I know they worship on Saturday. So part of our culture is that we're Sabbath keepers. Part of our culture. They know when Christmas time comes. They know when Santa Claus is all dressed up at Walmart. They know that we do not embrace Santa Claus and the reindeer. Rudolph is not important to us. The Christmas tree is not important to us. And we know that all biblical gifts ought to be given to the one whose birthday is being celebrated at Christmas time, at the birth of Christ time. So we don't have any problem in substituting and removing the pagan worship of Christmas, Santa Claus, Rudolph, and the rest of it, and remembering that we devote an entire week at Tabernacles to the celebration of Christ and His birth. Now, I'm going to ask our young people here, I am going to ask high school students here that are present. You have grown up, you're pretty much adults now. Do you feel deprived 
in not having a Christmas tree in your home and sitting on Santa Claus' lap as a child. Stand up if you stand up if you feel good about celebrating Jesus' birth at Tabernacles. Just stand up. All right, there you have a grand representation. Now, Rachel, would you re, would you? I want you to take a, a, a take a notice. I'm not going to ask you the birth year of, of Rachel Kunkel. But now Rachel has been with this church from the time she entered the world. Her mother and her daddy were married in 1973. Thank you, Rachel. Alice came here as a high school graduate from El Dorado Springs, Missouri. She was brought cold turkey into this church by her husband. And I doubt seriously, I've never asked this question of, of Alice, but I don't think her husband spent very much time trying to theology trying to validate his theology, he just said, Alice, I'm not sure what he said, but he enticed her to marry him. And I don't think that Alice had a great understanding because you know what, in that climate, I'm not sure what Alice's theological paradigm was then. I know she was a Baptist attending the Sulphur Springs Little Baptist Church, where Sister Antonia and Julie and different ones have played that piano a lot. So that's the church Alice grew up in. That's the church Lena grew up in. That's the church Nancy grew up in. How did they end up here? We, we might ought to ask ourselves that question. Those three sisters have been in this church as long almost as anyone here today. What gives these three sisters holding power? Why have they remained rooted, grounded, settled? How many think they were ever offended? How many think they let the offending party take them out of the church don't think it happened why because if you want to become a part of a church culture you grow up you mature as a Christian and you become rooted and you don't blow apart or up root yourself like a tree in a storm. You stay rooted. You stay grounded because of your faith. You are anchored in a culture. Now, I've asked myself this question, church. What would I do if I suddenly did not have the church here. What would I do? I'd be lost to begin with. And it wouldn't be long till I'd try, be trying to do something significantly to replace my, my great loss.
So, we're embarking on a story here of how to build a culture. Now, Pastor Reed Benson is a real expert at this, and he's going to be, he's going to be working on this too. But my intention is to set the plowshares. In the olden days, we would say, we'd take a hold of a lever on a, on a plow, and we, if we wanted those shears to go down deep, we would really put the pressure to that lever and make those plowshares go deep. So we need to plow deep into the soil of biblical truth and figure out how we can prepare a culture so solidified that we all feel comfortable And yet, its, it's enduring future will be there for our children. Because we want to know our children will have a wonderful future potentially ahead of them. You know, God, I'm going to end with this now, church. And we're just beginning to plow this ground. But you need to remember, church, that God has always had His remnant. If we can qualify to be a part of that remnant, a lot of it is contingent upon building a culture to keep us from being devoured by the worldly culture around us. So I pray that I haven't lost you today. And I pray that you would be inspired to begin to think radically how and under what circumstances we can build a culture for your sons and daughters, your grandsons and your granddaughters for generations to come. Shall we be standing?